Continuous improvement comes in lots of different flavors and styles. I'm Bella Engelbach, and I'm inviting you to journey with me to the edges of lean. Episode 99, Continuous Improvement in Dyslexia with Lois Letchford. When you work with your employees or clients, what assumptions are you making about their reading skills? If you're like me, you might assume that almost everyone you work with reads easily, but that is likely not true. Lois Letchford joined me at the Ages of Lean to talk about her experience as the parent of a child with dyslexia and how Lean Thinkers can help create success for adults with dyslexia. Lois Letchford has written a book about her experiences called Reversed, a memoir. Lois Letchford, welcome to the Ages of Lean. Thank you, Bella. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really glad to have you. Lois, can you tell everyone what it is you do? What I do? I'm now a tutor, a speaker, and an educator. I was a teacher for many years, and now that I've got older, I'm tutoring from home. I'm an author as well, which tells my story. So tell us your story. I was thrown into my story through having children. I sent my eldest son to school and he learns at the speed of light and you expect what happens with one will also happen the remainder. That's not the case. The second son learned the speed of a snail. In fact, the speed of a snail doesn't go down well in schools. So he failed first grade. Oh, my goodness. And I knew on day six there was a problem. I spoke to the teacher and said, how's he going? And she threw up her hands and said, well, I don't know how he's going to cope this year. He can't do a thing and he stares into space every day. He wet his pants, he bit his fingernails, and then they test at the end of the year. Was this kindergarten? It's We were in Australia at the time, so I don't know how it equates. He was five and a half going to school. In Australia, it was called first grade. First grade. And and he hadn't had any intervention before that. He had speech therapy. Had he? Which is critical. So tell us about that. What, speech therapy? Well, about about the speech therapy and why that was critical. Children not only have speech difficulties, speech difficulty, the inability to pronounce actual words and not do the L sound impacts the way you hear. But what else happens is that they don't always get the language that they need to develop to be really ready for first grade. So when he was in speech therapy, was the speech therapy focused on his his output more than think about what was happening between the ears more than that and the speech therapy was quite amazing because the therapist said to me you've got to work on the ed words and this is how you do it ed is the past tense of walked and talked and opened and closed and she said you do an action i am opening in the window and then you say to him I opened the window. I am talking to you. I talked to you or I spoke with you. And then there's two words for the same meaning. Yeah, yeah. And and then what's fascinating to me is, yes, I'm teaching my son, but who's learning more? 
And that's you are. Me. Yeah. Yeah. So he's in first grade now and he fails first grade. You've got this other son who everything's easy for him. What was your sense at home about what was happening? Well, he couldn't do it. Mm. He just couldn't do it. And my poor little boy, I mean, even now my heart just breaks for what I did to him, and that was that I sent him to school. Oh, my gosh. I had a third son who was at the age of two, I think, next five, so we would have been two. And they didn't allow me to go to school with the youngest one, so that took me out of the classroom and I wasn't really sure what was happening. And I just didn't have enough around me at that time to take Nicholas out of school, which is what I should have done. End of the year, he gets tested, he can read 10 words, he's got no strength and he's got a low IQ. And you knew he didn't have a low IQ. My husband is a professor and he's amazing. And when I came home with those results, he said to me, that's a lower bound. He can look like that on any given day. And that was really important for me to hear because he understands statistics. He understands testing. He understands outliers. And our son was an outlier. The problem is, yes, that's our opinion and my husband's opinion. That was right. the school's opinion. The school's opinion is this is a test. We have done it. We are right. And you are wrong. Because they're the experts. Because they're the experts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get this test result. Get it's failed test. first grade. What did the school want to do? Uh, they're going to put him into a reading program with a reading teacher, and he's going to have a reading teacher one-on-one, -on -one, four days a week. Really good. One yeah, that one. is good. Yeah. That is very good. And our family has something special coming up. My husband, as I said, is a professor, and he's got study leave the following year back in, in Oxford where he did his PhD. So the family is going to go to Oxford for six months, and because of that, we're going to put Nicholas into second grade so when he comes back from Oxford, he's going to repeat, but he's going to have the same teacher. So there's a consistency. So there was thinking going on behind the decision. Yeah, good, 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 good. Yeah, and that was fantastic. So we head to Oxford. I go with a series of books that's going to help me teach this kid to decode called Success for All, and we fail again. Oh, no. Abject fail. He, it's single words on the page, no picture. Read the word, sound out the word, read the word, go on, go on, go and go back to the first word, no memory. My mother-in-law was with me and she said, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. Put away what's not working, which was the book with no context, and make learning fun. And what did you think when you heard that from your mother-in-law? good on you you're right you're yeah. absolutely right. I cannot continue doing what I've already done he's frustrated I'm frustrated and no one's getting anywhere and then I thought mm, how do I do this he can rhyme words and he can see patterns I'm going with that so I wrote a little poem for him and that first little poem I read to him He's excited. He's relaxed. His shoulders are down. He's got a smile on his face. And 
as slow as he is going and my stress levels are high because I see he's getting it, but he's getting it at this tiny, tiny little sick bird rate. Tiny, tiny drops is all he can take in, but he can do it. And so we do one poem and another and another and another. And my mother-in-law illustrates the poems with him. Oh, how marvellous. And it was just, it was astounding. And the poems, because they were so good, I kept writing and writing. So all day I'm writing to give Nicholas one more poem. Create this book. Then then the double O's come up. The double O's as in the words cook, look and book. And cook, my thought, Captain James Cook, the last of the great explorers. Captain Cook had a notion there's a gap in the map in the great big ocean. He took a look without the help of any book, hoping to find a quiet little nook. The beauty of poetry is you have these simple words, four lines, that explain the huge world out there. And while and we're learning about Captain Cook and, you know, if you don't know who Captain Cook was, he's the last of the great explorers. He completed the mapping of Australia in 1770 and it's uncharted waters. Huge effort. While we're looking at that, we're looking at map shops because we're in Oxford, England, that's got access to everything in the world. Nicholas says to me, first question was, can I see Captain Cook's original maps? Wow. I'm blown away. And he asked me twice before I call up the British Museum and say, "Mm, they must be here somewhere. We'll have to find them. And they were in the British Museum and we made an appointment and we saw Captain Cook's original maps. And then he said to me, and who came before Captain Cook? I said, that's easy, Nicholas. That was Christopher Columbus. And he says to me, and who came before Columbus? Now I know that the child in front of me does not have a low IQ and that question comes from a child with incredible thinking skills. Yeah, yeah. Huge. You became his teacher. How long did you teach him? Six months. In fact, it was down to four months. Because we arrived in England and the schools are on holidays. I couldn't work with him. He just refused. Everybody else was on holiday. Why why should he? Yeah, exactly. I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. So we're down to four months. And so I'm doing the poetry. And then when the boys go to school, one lady, one person spoke to me in Oxford and she said, Lois, I've got this series of books for you. She asked about Nicholas and she said, I've got this series of books for you. And it was see it, see it, see it hear it, say it, do it, and it's on teaching decoding. But the poetry came first, decoding came second. And that was a critical component, that we had the knowledge and the love of learning before we went to decoding. If I had just been given those books, I would have expected those books to do the job and they wouldn't have done it. The love of learning really had to come first. And and when you think about that age, Lois, that is, you know, just hardwired to learn, but something was standing in his way. Something about his brain work, the way his brain worked was standing in the way. And what you were doing was just opening that door for him so his natural learning ability could start to shine. 
Exactly. And I realised when we were afterwards recently, you know, because I became a reading specialist because of my son and that experience was transformative for both of us. Um, Then, you know, he said to me, um, or sorry, I realised that I had to give him that love of learning to make the decoding, the letters and sounds become really important. Why are we doing these things? Oh, because there's so much to learn in X, Y, and Z. And that was, and that was what he needed then was was to know that there was all this stuff out there to learn. And that was the learning was exciting, even if the reading was difficult and very slow. Yes, exactly. And I could see the brain power and the connections that were happening that were just astonishing. I read a lot now, and there's two books that I love. One is called Curious by Ian Leslie, and the other is Why by Mario DeVio. Mario, I think it's Mario DeVio. Mario Levio, and he's a brain scientist. No, he's not. He's an astrophysicist or something like that field. But in one of those books, he talks about curiosity and taking an MRI of the brain and what curiosity does to the brain. He said curiosity acts, or an MRI of the brain acts like we're taking a picture, a slice of the ocean. And when you do an MRI of curiosity, it's the same thing. It's like a slice. You cannot see the enormous impact that tapping into curiosity has on the brain. And that's what happened with Nicholas. So you became a reading specialist and you've worked with uh, how many children do you think? Hundreds at this point? Yeah. Hundreds. And and is that the same for, for all of them that they that they benefit when their curiosity is turned on, when they, when they become aware of the benefit of having to do what for them is extra hard work? Yes. What the research says about reading instruction is fascinating because it says the children who struggle the most are given the most reductive practices. And that reductive means reduced to letters and sound. And that's How boring. <laughs> and, the, and I know the very first thing I have to do with my students is get their attention. And if I don't get their attention, forget it. So I have to get their attention. I have to do something different. And I have to help them know they can learn. And that comes before I do anything else. Before you do anything else. So what's Nicholas doing now? Well, after that extraordinary beginning, our family actually moved to Lubbock, Texas. And if I don't know if you know where Lubbock, Texas is, but it's in the middle of nowhere. And in my book, I call that chapter The Spring in the Desert because he went from the bottom to the top. He did. Yeah. Bottom to the top. He graduated high school in 2007 in the top 20% of his class doing physics, mathematics, biology, chemistry, you name it. He did it. He completed two undergraduate degrees, an honours degree in mathematics and an honours degree in engineering. And then the ultimate he completed a PhD in applied mathematics from Oxford University. Went back to Oxford. Oh, good for him. So how's his reading? 
slow, yeah, but brilliant. Slow but brilliant. He can comprehend everything. But it takes him time. It takes him time. He's slower. He's slow. Note-taking is very difficult. Or, you know, note-taking in meetings. You wouldn't ask Nicholas to do that if you had a choice. But, you know, it's very interesting as an adult, living as a dyslexic adult, because people often see your weaknesses, not your strengths. But when you're in a position, they don't realise what weaknesses you come with. Lois, what percentage of adults have reading difficulties? Ah, good question. More than there should be. More than there should be. When we're in the workplace, right, and we're working with other people, and you know, we might have an assumption about people's ability to read and understand a written material we've given them, or in the case sometimes to understand verbally what we're telling them, then are there a lot of people, you know, a larger number of people that we would expect who are just going to struggle with that? I think it's somewhere between 20 and 25%. Oh, wow. Wow. They, you know, I'm dyslexic. I've survived the system and I became a teacher. Things I find difficult, interviews. Very difficult. Like 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 what we're doing now, where I'm no. interviewing you. No, interviewing okay. for a job, very I difficult. About that, yeah, yeah. And hearing a question and answering it because I've you know I've come to you, I've spoken with you, we've talked about my story and what we do. This is easy for me, but to do an interview and to what have I heard, as opposed to what have they asked, are two different things at times. And when a question comes totally out of the blue, there's a probability that I haven't answered it or I've answered something different. So it's, um, and I know this because my one of my kids has an auditory processing disorder that, that as the person who's speaking to someone with, a, with this particular um, issue, you could think you're being absolutely clear and inside the head the cogs are really going right like like what did they really say what did they really mean what did what did what was what was that word did I hear that word correctly and that takes a lot of mental energy right before you even come up with the answer but exactly and what was interesting when Nicholas was doing his PhD he had support and what was the the big deal is what they did to him or helped him do was Nicholas, restate the question. Restate what you have heard. And that takes time and effort on the part of, on my part as a listener to say, what have I heard? Now have I answered the question? And then you have to think again, this is how to answer it. And that is a skill that everybody really needs, right? Because even people who are not, uh, um, you know, don't have an auditory processing disorder, but almost anyone is not really hearing at the yeah. at, already thinking of what the next what the next question you have is or or already composing the answer before you've heard the end of it. So what Nicholas was get that aid that Nicholas was getting there was something that is beneficial for everybody, right? Yes. That that reminder to play back. What was it I 
I heard because maybe I heard it right. And maybe I didn't hear it right. Uh, you know, and I think it's a skill. It's something you really got to work on. Yeah. It's not automatic to do that. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, now Nicholas is working. He's back in Australia and he's working for the government. He is a mathematical modeler. That's what he I does. don't even know what that is. <laughs> Takes lots of numbers and puts them into a pretty picture. <laughs> That's my interpretation. <laughs> so, but there's there's like that visual component to it. It's not just it's not just turning it into words. It's it's using another another skill set that um, that perhaps he has that that uh, other people might not have. What's interesting about Nicholas is his strengths and weaknesses. His weaknesses in language, oral language in particular, and hearing it and getting it to the mouth, like your son with the auditory processing. That's Nicholas's diagnosis. So. And that diagnosis, he's about the first and second percentile of the population. That's one out of 100. His spatial awareness places him on the 99th percentile. So you've got this extreme difficulty that he has, which is most unusual. It's it's such an interesting thing to think about when we're meeting somebody, whether it's somebody that we are interviewing with or somebody that we are interviewing or it's someone in the workplace that we're trying, you know, we're working with, that we're coaching, just to really think through, is this person perceiving things the, the way I expect them to? Because what you've already said is in terms of reading difficulties, that might be 20 to 25% of the population who, no matter how beautifully you've written something, it's not going to necessarily work for them. It's going to take them longer to read, or um, by the time they get to the end, the beginning has, has vanished somewhere. Um, and it's not because of lack of intelligence or lack of other skills. It's because their brain's just made differently. And um, I think for lean professionals, this is a really important realization. Um, I mean, it's an important realization for any adult, right? They Taking that theory of mind beyond, well, there are other people out there and they have different thoughts than I do. Taking it to the way that I take in information, the way that I understand, the way that I'm able to feed information back to other people. The person I'm with may or may not be able to do that. And if I think that they're not responding the way that I think they should, it's not necessarily their fault or my fault, but we're, mi we're missing something, right? Yeah. I think that's a really important point because when people meet Nicholas out of the blue or, you know, a brand new person, what do they see? They see the weakness. He's slow at responding. He might have poor eye contact. You know, he he might do some odd body language. And then immediately, you know, within seconds, and his wife will tell you this, people jump to the conclusions he's not very smart. Mm. Instant. And you, we don't hang around long enough to see this guy's got something entirely different to offer. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, 
it's such an important thing for us to be aware of. And for I think for also um, for us to be aware of how our own brains might be different, right? So I love when you said, oh, I'm dyslexic. I think a lot of people won't say that, right? That they would be, I'm not going to say that. I want to reveal that about myself. But um, <laughs> it's taken me, is, um, sorry. Now go, go ahead. It's taken me a long time to say I'm dyslexic and to recognise how many problems it has caused me uh, in the past. And people, again, you know, write me off because of X, Y and Z. And the struggles that I have with various components, I tell you, I'm so thankful for AI and chat GPT. <laughs> It's been a boom. And doing these podcasts, these podcasts are fantastic. I can talk to people. I've got the knowledge. I think about reading and reading instruction and communicating with people enormously now. What was your process for writing your book? Oh, oh. I wrote my book. I finished my master's degree in upstate New York. I'd moved, so I'd done things. I'd moved with my husband. I've completed a master's degree and thought, what do I want to do now? I didn't want to do a PhD because writing was too difficult. So I wrote my book and it was terrible. Six months of writing and, you know, the tenses are everywhere, the story's a mess, whatever. But it gave me a structure. And I went to writing classes and I met this girl who's my son's age and she said, Lois, if you want to write a book, I'll help you. So I paid oh. her. I paid her as my editor. We met weekly. She wrote, I wrote, she edited, she added, she changed beginnings and endings and tell me more about this and share this and X, Y. That was the process. And I needed that writing buddy because my writing from where I was, I could not write a book that would be published and sold. Now I have a book that I am proud of because of her, and she taught me how to write. Interestingly, all the reading I had done and all the listening we had done when I was teaching and we we're driving around Texas aided my writing. And once someone gave me the clues, I could do it. So it was all in there, but you needed you just needed some help to get it out. Yeah. 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 And, you know, that is not bad advice for anyone who wants to write. I mean, the idea that, that, you know, that somebody sits down and writes all by themselves and it's automatically brilliant, it's not. Yeah. It's it, takes not. Lot, it takes lots of practice. And even for the book that I wrote, I mean, you're seeing the end product, how many changes and additions and thinking and thinking and thinking before even word got on the page. The amount of talking I did with my husband, who I drove nuts, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, you know, you think it over, you mull it over. To me, it was like, it's like making a, a you know, a bread because it's got to sit. The ideas have got to sit. They've got to rest. They've got to ferment. They've got to interact and they've got to bubble up. And then you write it. Then you've got to go back to the sitting and the fermenting. <laughs> right, right. Because because what you, and, and this is always true, what you thought you were getting on the page isn't, A, what maybe what you thought 
what you wanted on the page. And also going back to how other people receive it may not be received by other people in the way that you had intended. So being a writer is, is actually a really good way to experience what it's like with, um, you know, with somebody who has some kind of, you know, neurodiversity, because other people are going to look at what you wrote and, and they're like, what, what did you mean by that? I don't understand how this idea is connected to that idea. Why did you choose this word? If you have a good editor and, and you, you have a great working relationship, um, all of those things, um, you know, you really learn a lot during that. You really do. I had three editors for my book. The first editor took the diamond out of the ground. Yeah. Dug it out of the ground. Then it has to be cut. The second editor cut it. And the third editor polished. <laughs> and it took that amount of time, I think, to get it from beginning to end. If you were to think back on writing the book, is there, is there one big learning for you out of that? Uh, that the reading is actually about emotions. Oh, I love that. Tell me more. I, I think the chapters that stuck with me, even in the first draft, when my husband was reading it, and he's in tears at the end of the chapter. Oh. It's not about just writing words, but how have I engaged my audience? Do they want to read on? And the biggest compliment I've had from people is I couldn't put the book down. So you've really got to people, you really you got to their emotional core yeah. with what you wrote and, and how it was presented to them. Do you mm -hmm. think you'll write another book? I'm trying to. Yeah. I'm trying to. It, one of the things that stops me is cost. Yeah. And it's not only the, the writing of the book is actually the easy part. Promotion of the book is incredibly expensive. Um, so I've met a lady who works at Russell Sage and she has twin sons who are dyslexic and we have connected and I would love to write one with her and explain more of what I do and why I do it. But, it, but it's also I want an arc for the book. I just don't want to put books out. I mean, people do and professionals do and, and I sit there and I read it and I think, oh. Because <laughs> it, it doesn't have the emotional piece, so it's just, it's just facts. It, yeah. And yeah. It, what they're saying is good and it's important, but it, it hasn't drawn me in. What have I been left with? What have I, I left with with that book? Yeah, there's just a checklist for you to follow. There's not a motivation for you to, to, to try it. To... And why can I tell you about Curious and Why? You know, I read those books ages ago because that's, that stuck with me. So I'm not writing a book that I just want, oh, yeah, I've read it. I put it down and I've lost it and I don't care that I've read it. I want a book that's written that people care about. And that lady wrote that book and, and wow, got me in the heart. Two books, two books for us to look up and, uh, and read for ourselves, along with your book, Lois. Oh, definitely. Yes. And write a review, please.
And write a review. Hey, that is so important. I think I've mentioned this before on this podcast. When you read somebody's book or listen to their podcast, it is so helpful if you can write a review. It makes a really big difference um, to the to the book's visibility. Uh, and uh, it makes a big difference to the to the author as well. Lois, I'd like to kind of wind back just for a few minutes. And when we, you were talking about Nicholas and how you managed to open that door for him through his curiosity and helping him to understand that reading was a key to a bigger world out there. And I want to take that idea and think about now adults that are struggling with reading um, disabilities as adults. Do you have any thoughts or tips on what helps with adults? Teachers are facilitators. They're not gods. Mm. The quote that comes to mind comes from Galileo. We cannot teach anybody anything. We can only help them discover it within themselves. Reading is about opening the door to that person so what's important to them. Follow their passions. And, and with this, when I say follow their passions, it's a bit of a push and a pull because teachers can guide students just through their love of learning and open yeah. the door to a wider world that a child or a student, adult student, may not have thought about before. But it's an engagement. It's an interaction. It's not I'm right and you're wrong. It's how we're going to connect together and how we're going to learn about this particular topic together. So it's not just setting the person out and saying, oh, well, you're you're interested in baseball. Read this book about baseball, right? Yes. Engage in experiences. Experiences connect with emotion, which connect with learning which you can then discuss further and read and write and share about and learn about. And reading as writing is not limited pen and paper anymore. You do have podcasts, you have YouTube, you have all of these other aspects open to us. Use them. Use chat GPT. Use it because you're building in their knowledge. You're starting from the inside and sharing out. I always say my, my son with the reading disability, he is the one and the family, I think, who reads the most, and he may he may listen to this podcast. We'll see how he responds to it. He's the one who reads the most, but he never opens a book. And that is because he uses the audio books and uh, he listens to a lot of podcasts. And he is always coming with an interesting thing to talk about, an interesting podcast to listen to, because he has figured out that's just the easiest way for him to absorb and understand information. He's not, he, he doesn't bother with trying to decipher what's on a written page anymore. We thank goodness we live in this age of technology that allows that. Which makes me now think, Lois. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking about uh, you know, being a lean consultant, a lean coach, and, and working with somebody, and perhaps we've discerned that one of the things holding this person back is a reading problem. The, there's nothing that would stop us then as the leader, as their manager, as their coach or providing information to them in a different way. Is there I mean, there's no reason why we shouldn't do that. And today, you know, we've got everything that reads it for us if we want to. Yeah. 
We have to use technology to engage people. My heart breaks for one of my students. He was 15 years old when I picked him up, started to teach him, and he could not read 10 words. Oh, my goodness. He left me three years later, so I had him for grade 10 and grade 11 and grade 12, and he could read at a second, third grade reading level. He could never find a teacher who would connect with him in the way I did. And then they just lost him. So he's now 35, 38 and struggling to hold a job. The things we talk about take a little bit more time. They take more effort on the part of the employer. Yeah. Are we willing to do them? Are we willing to take the time to engage and include these people and help them get to a level where they can be independent? COVID has been disastrous for my student. My former because student. Of the, because, because of the, the uh, lack of ability to actually to be together and to, yeah. He's an incredibly hard worker. He would turn up on time. He would do those things. But the fundamental thing of every job of reading takes time. It takes effort. And believe me, he's reading on a very low level as an adult. And it's very easy to find an excuse to fire him. And they do. And does that also start with the employer creating a safe environment where somebody can admit a disability and get help for it, get assistance for it? Because even, you know, you and I both in the U.S., even with the Americans with Disabilities Act, that still requires disclosure on the part of the person with the disability, right? And not everybody is in a working environment where it's safe to do that. Uh, so um, it's, uh, it's, I think it's incumbent upon people who are in leadership positions to work on creating that safe environment where it really is okay to say, I'm having trouble reading this. You know, I was late to work because I didn't open your email because reading email is so hard for me, right? That would be, um, you know, if, if, but if, up, if we don't have a safe environment, we're never going to hear that and then have poor performance and that's expensive for the company and then the person gets reprimanded or fired and nobody wins in that situation. Nobody wins. That's exactly right. There's no winner at all. And it's just so hard that the system failed my student. Yeah. The system failed him because he'd been in special ed, special education. He'd been with reading teachers and they couldn't do it. I did it. But I did it because I'm different and I believe in what I do. And I, and I wasn't giving him a standardised approach to things. But you're right. Once we've got this child in this situation, how are we going to have him survive in a workplace? Good question. I love it. it it's, it's another thing that we need to think about. We, we talk a lot about diversity, equity and inclusion. And I know when we think about that, we think about race, um, gender, sexual identity, yeah, gender 
identity, we think about those things, right? Um, but disability, of, of which, let's face it, almost everyone has some, you know, some form of disability, nobody's perfect, um, is people don't talk about it, or people don't recognize it, or they don't feel safe saying it, they have never been diagnosed, I mean, we don't know. So um, it's very important for us to think about. And Lois, I, again, I just admire you for you just saying, hey, I'm dyslexic, so this is hard for me. And <laughs> you're brilliant in so many other ways. Thank you, because that's something I don't say to myself. And when you grow up dyslexic and grow up failing and failing and failing and failing, the first thing that comes to my mind is you're stupid. But you're not. So to have someone else say you're brilliant and you can do this, it's what you then I have to change and take on board. And that's a shift in my, my identity. And what you're telling us about how you were able to so crack Nicholas's little door open there and how you've helped other students. That really shows that you have, uh, you know, a skill, an ability, and an empathy that many other people have not been able to generate. Um, and the, I think the other thing that I love about what you're saying, Lois, is that how you have uh, really worked with other people to help you, whether it was your mother-in-law with that wonderful idea um and the illustrations of nicholas's poems um you know the person who helped you get your diamond out of the earth for the beginning of your book um it's such an important thing to for all of us to be able to do to realize you know none of us can do any of this by ourselves right we're all better with other people's ideas other people's support and um i think uh, i think what you're showing us is very very helpful and very important I just love this conversation with you because it's more than just about reading. You know, there are long-term consequences for children who don't fit normal early on. And even for Nicholas, who does read, he's still not normal. And, and I think we have to ask the question, what do we want our society to look like? That's a big question. It is, it is a big question. And if we're, if we're talking about inclusion, what does inclusion really mean? What does that really mean? Oh, I love that it, question. It, it's a lot of work on everybody's part, you know, to really be inclusive. And, and I think we're just beginning to, to understand what that might mean for all of us. Lois, what's the name of your book? My book is Reversed, a memoir. Um, put out by Acorn Publication. You can find me on LinkedIn. I've been, I had a skiing accident. Oh, and no. so, yes, well, it was worse than that. I shattered my clavicle and nice. then I got, I got the clavicle repaired and ended up with nerve damage. Oh, no. So I've been a little bit quieter on all social media, but I tutor students privately. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. I don't know about Twitter anymore. <laughs> but I love Nobody knows about Twitter anymore. <laughs> I love talking on podcasts and this this conversation is just so powerful to me. It's so powerful that we're talking about, you know, the like you said inclusion for everyone. 
What does it look like once our children leave school? It's, you know, we're all, we're all out there trying to live with each other. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I think just to withhold judgment of people who are a little bit different and to stop and think before we respond. I think that would be my words. Stop and think before we respond. Very, very good advice. Can I ask you for one more piece of advice? Or maybe it's the same advice. What is your one piece of advice for a young person starting out? Let's think about, you know, someone who's going into the workplace for the first time. I would say believe in yourself. Yeah. Believe you can do it. Believe. And then the second is, you know, when you're interacting with someone, particularly someone who looks a little bit different, just to stop and take a moment before we respond and think maybe the problem's a little bit bigger than what we see. Mm. Thank you. That's really that's really good advice. And I, I love that the way you're tying that together. So believe in yourself, but all it's almost like you're saying give space for other people as well. Really, yeah. Mm. Give space for others. I love it. Yeah, I just love this conversation. I just think it's such an important one that we all have. Well, thank you, Lois, for traveling with me to the edges of lean. <laughs> thank you, Bella. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Lois Letchford for being my guest on the edges of lean. What did you learn from this conversation? What ideas did it spark for you? We would love to hear from you. Find Lois at loisletchford.com and find her book wherever books are sold. It's called Reversed, a memoir. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. Subscribe and tell a friend about the edges of lean. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn and check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos and lots of great new content every week. The Ages of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.